You are listening to the Faith Church Podcast. Learn more about our church at faithinchandler.com. In 2004, Mike Politich could tell that something wasn't right because where he used to enjoy throwing a ball, his arm was really sore and his aim was starting to be off. And afterwards, his hand would, would shake and have a tremor. His wife said to him later, Honey, I've noticed recently you don't smile as much as you used to. He thought, Well, maybe I'm not smiling because my arm hurts. Maybe I've got some kind of carpal tunnel going on or something. So he went to the doctor and got checked out. The doctor ran several tests. She called him in to hear the report. He was only 43, and she told him that he had early-onset Parkinson's. And that over the next 10 years, he would lose his ability to walk. His ability to talk would slowly go. He would not be able to use his hands. And for seven years, his condition deteriorated. Didn't go as fast as some people that have Parkinson's, but his hands were always shaking, struggled to walk. He was constantly having to tell his clients at work that his speech was slurred because of his disease and not because he'd had one too many. But in 2011, there was a new trial study that he was excited to try. This company had come up with a procedure where they would drill two holes in each end of the skull and put medicine, a gene therapy, directly into each hemisphere of the brain where Parkinson's disease was believed uh, to be sourced. After the surgery, Mike made incredible progress. His hand stopped shaking. His speech became clear. He was able to walk more steadily. And his doctor was amazed because while it's a miracle if someone slows down the progression of Parkinson's. To see the results of Parkinson's reversed is unheard of. She couldn't believe the progress that he had made. Two years later, as he was still continuing to benefit from this progress, an announcement came out about the trial that he had been a part of. This new trial study, this new trial procedure, the company that had been doing all of these tests, they came out and said, we found that this is an ineffective method of treating Parkinson's. Mike's doctor was crushed. She couldn't believe here he had benefited so much, but apparently not many people had. And She wondered if there was something different about his case that, that made him more affected by the surgery. And so she looked into his individual case now that all of the results had been made public. And what she found shocked her. Mike had not received the procedure. He had received the placebo. He'd been in the control group. They had taken him in, shaved portions of his skull, given him anesthesia, and then drilled two small divots in his cranium and then never put the medicine in because they wanted to have a control group to see if people who received the medicine and people who didn't, if there was any marked difference. The only thing that had made a difference in Mike's condition was that for the first time in years, he had hope. And when he had hope that perhaps this treatment would make a difference, his symptoms faded back. 
Unfortunately, he still had Parkinson's, and it was still threatening his life and taking over portions of his brain. But hope is so powerful that it can make that kind of difference in someone's body. Hope is so powerful. This is the reason that researchers have to give placebos. That when they do a new trial of medicine, they give people the new medicine and they give people that has nothing but sugar or sugar water in it to see if the difference that is being made is the medicine or just the hope that people have that they'll be cured. Hope is a powerful thing. And because hope is so powerful, we desperately want it in our lives. We cling to it. We look for any opportunity that we might have to to grab hold of something that will give us a reason for hope. There was a group of people 2,000 years ago that they wanted hope. They wanted to have hope, but they didn't have anything to rest that hope on. They believed that Jesus was a good man. They believed that his teachings were noble and ought to be listened to, but they didn't believe that he was the Son of God. They didn't believe that he rose again from the dead. And so Paul writes them a letter in 1 Corinthians. In chapter 15, those words that we read together earlier, he says to them, if there is no resurrection, if there is no resurrection from the dead, if Christ is not risen, we are of all men most miserable. Miserable is the word that he uses. He doesn't say we are of all men misled. We are of all men blissfully ignorant. Or we are of all men just misguided. He says we're miserable. Because Paul was saying that if our hope is not based on anything, then it will come crashing down and leave us utterly disappointed. You see, when our hope is resting on nothing or very little, It's fragile, and it's temporary. Hope alone is fragile. How many of you like April Fool's Day? All right, how many of you dislike April Fool's Day, right? My grandmother, my dad's mom, loved April Fool's Day. It was her favorite holiday. I mean, I really think that maybe she liked it more than Christmas. She loved April Fool's, enjoyed tricking people on April Fool's. If my grandmother calls today, I'm not going to answer the phone because I know what she's up to. There's this legendary story in our family. When my dad was a boy, one winter his bike was stolen. A couple months later, my grandfather, his father, bought a brand new car, which is a really big deal for their family. Now, those two unrelated events led up to April 1st morning. My grandmother walking in and waking my dad up my dad, who's a boy, waking him up and saying, Ricky, someone has stolen your dad's car. And she was all in fun. And my dad immediately jumped out of bed, knelt down and began to pray, God, please bring my dad's car back. And my grandmother thought this was so funny that she began to laugh hysterically. But her hysterical laughter sounded like crying. So my dad prayed harder, which made my grandmother laugh harder, which made my dad pray harder. I can't tell you how many times when I was a boy, my grandmother got me on April Fool's. And she got me so many times that I got to the point when if it was spring, I didn't believe anything that she said. (laughs) 
I, I would want to know, like, what's the, what's the day? Because she got me so many times. I've been fooled so many times. There's some of you here that life has, has thrown you a few curveballs. Life has fooled you several times, and not just on April Fool's Day. And because of that, you're skeptical. You are guarded when it comes to hope. You don't want to get your hopes up because you know how difficult it is when your hopes are let down. And I can fully appreciate where you're coming from. You've been burned one too many times. You've got a little bit of doubt or a lot of bit of doubt. I want you to hear this morning that if you've got doubts and you've got skepticism, that your doubts and your skepticism don't push out any room for faith. You can still have faith. That in the middle of your skepticism, you can still have faith and hope. In fact, the entire letter that Paul has written here, he is telling the Corinthians, listen, there's some things that you've been taught that you don't need to believe, and there's some people telling you some things that you don't need to listen to them. He's telling them to be skeptical. He's telling them to have some skepticism so that there is a room for the true hope and faith that they need. And so if you're here this morning and you are skeptical, and you've got your guard up when it comes to hope, I want you to know that your skepticism can coexist with faith and hope. Hope is powerful, but hope built upon something solid is transformational. And Paul points out here in this letter that they can have hope in the midst of their skepticism. He shows them how. But before I get to how you can have hope and faith in the midst of your skepticism, let me tell you why you need faith and hope. Paul has two whys or two concerns here in this passage. You read them with me a moment ago as Eric led us. The first one is in the verse just before verse 19 in verse 18. Paul says, Then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. What he's saying is, if Christ has not risen from the dead, then all those who have passed away have perished. And the word he uses for perished is like when food goes bad, it spoils. There's nothing that can be done. You can't turn back the clock. It can't be salvaged. It's got to be thrown out. It's the same word that's used if something is burnt up. There's no restoring it. It's been burnt up. It's completely lost. And what Paul is saying is we need faith and hope. Because if there isn't the resurrection of Christ, if there isn't something for us to place our faith in, we have no reason to hope that those that we have lost, we will ever see them again. If there is no faith, there is no hope, then those that we have lost, we have lost forever. There's no bringing them back. and There's no seeing them again. Last year, I heard a story that was pretty scary. It was a story of picture life. Is this software that you could have on your computer and your phone. It was in the early days of the cloud. And the, this software would take any picture that you had taken with your phone and any picture that you had uploaded onto your computer, and it would save it to the cloud, so no matter what, it was always safe. And the tagline for this company was, forget hard drives and forget organizing files. Let Picture Life take care of your photos. And there were many people who paid a premium for Picture Life to hold on to their photos of their children or of their wedding. But then one day, as people logged on to Picture Life's website, the website was down. 
The next day, it was still down. And the third day, it was still down. And it became obvious, they're not just upgrading their website, something's wrong. But then on the fourth day, the website was back up. And everyone was ecstatic. But when they opened up their profile, they could see their pictures, the file name, the date. But if they clicked on it, the only thing that came up was a blue or green screen. The picture had been lost. If you've ever had a phone that took a swim and you lost what was on it, it was so important to you, you know that feeling of, of losing something that you, you can't regain. And these people were terrified that they had lost these photos that would never be regained. This reporter found the owner of the website. The website had been bought and sold by some other company. He saved all the pictures himself, and he was painstakingly going through the process of uploading these people's photos so that they could regain them. They had been saved somewhere. As tragic as it would be, as scary as it might be to think that the photos of your children were lost, or the photos of your wedding were lost, Paul says we desperately need faith and hope because without it, we have no reason to believe that we will see those that have gone ahead of us ever again. This past year, I've walked with some people here in our congregation that they've lost loved ones. And this truth, this belief, this hope is transformational for them in that time of grief to know that they're not saying goodbye forever. But there is a hope that they will see that loved one again. And friend, let me tell you that that is a big reason why we need hope and faith. Paul's second reason is in the verse just previous to that one in verse 17. He says, And if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, and you are yet in your sin. Paul's second reason why you need faith and hope is that if Christ is not raised from the dead, we're still lost in our sins. In the beginning of the chapter, part of which we read together, Paul says, And I delivered unto you that message which was first given unto me, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture. He says Christ died for our sins. The reason that Christ died was not because He had a misunderstanding with the Romans. It wasn't because He got sideways with the Jewish religious leaders. The reason that Jesus went to the cross was for our sin. And when he says Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, he's talking about Isaiah 53, which says, He hath laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. Our sin and the punishment required for our wrongdoings was taken from our account and placed on the shoulders of Christ on the cross. That was the reason that He went to the cross. God laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. Just as Paul said Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, he then says, and He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. He repeats Himself. He's already said according to the Scriptures. The reason He repeats Himself is because just as Christ died according to the Scriptures, like Isaiah 53 spoke about, He rose again according to the Scriptures as prophecy foretold that He would. And when he rose from the grave on that third day, he was showing the world that he was not just another good man that was killed. 
He was not another, another just a good prophet or preacher or teacher or martyr who was taken out. He was the Son of God who died for our sins. And the resurrection was the seal or the verification that He indeed was the Son of God that had died for our sins. And His resurrection gives us confirmation that He went to that cross for no other reason but for our sins. So Paul says... Paul says, we need faith and hope because without it, Christ's death is meaningless to us. We need to know and believe that that death on the cross was for our sins. Frees us from our sin. And Paul didn't want them to merely feel better. Paul didn't merely want them to have a hope that would make them feel okay. Paul wanted them to be better. Paul wanted them to be freed from their sins. And because of the resurrection, we not only have hope, we have a reason for hope, and that we have been freed from our sins and transformed. God has made that change in us. In his book, The Power of Habit, Charles Duhigg tells the story of these researchers from UC Berkeley that they were studying people that were in Alcoholics Anonymous. And they were trying to figure out why some people in Alcoholics Anonymous would do well, stay sober for a period of time. The program would help them. And then they would relapse. And they did interviews with these people. They began to notice that oftentimes when these people that had been doing well would relapse, that there was some tragedy or calamity that came up in their life. There was a loss of job. There was an ending of a relationship. Their children got in trouble. Their parents got sick. So they began to look at people who had stayed sober through those calamities, through those adversities. And as they interviewed them, they would say, well, when, when your mother got sick, what, what kept you from, from going out and getting drunk again? What kept you from picking up that drug again? And they would say things like, well, I, I just believed that God could help me through it. Now that drove the researchers crazy because you can't quantify faith. You can't quantify that belief. They couldn't walk into treatment centers and say, listen, if you want to succeed, you just need to believe, so believe. It didn't work that way. But as they completed their study, that's what they found. The difference between people who found some sobriety in the program and then relapsed when there was difficulty and those that found sobriety and remained sober through adversity was that those who stayed sober had faith. They had belief in God that He had changed them, that He had brought about this work in them and made them a new person. Hope is powerful and hope built upon faith is powerful and durable. No matter what storms may come in life, no matter what difficulties we face. This past year, I've seen people in our congregation walk through the most difficult of situations and I've been moved by their faith and their hope. And their hope is not shaken because they have this solid faith. That was Paul's desire for the Corinthians. This entire chapter of 1 Corinthians 15 is him building a case for them to have a hope that is not shaken by anything. He ends the chapter, this verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 58, says this, Therefore, or based upon these things, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, 
always abounding in the work of the Lord, for as much as you know that your labor is not in vain. Amen. What was he saying? He was saying, I want you to have a hope that isn't moved by the difficulties that you face. I want you to have a faith that is unmovable and steadfast. So this entire chapter is him building that faith, giving them reasons that they can have this hope upon which they will set their faith, their hope, that will not be moved. The very beginning of the passage that we read together, he says, I gave unto you that which was given unto me. He's saying, what was handed to me, I hand to you. And he shares with them a creed. He says, Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that He was buried, and that He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And what He's repeating to them is something that believers would repeat together when they gathered for worship. They would greet one another with, it was their creed. And that creed gave verification that the story hadn't changed. This wasn't something new that Paul had come up with. And the message that I share with you today is not something new that I cooked up this week, but rather it's the message of the gospel that was written about before Christ was even born. And he lived out, died on a cross, and rose again the third day. 1 Corinthians is one of the earliest books in the New Testament. And here in this earliest book, we have Paul giving us what was given to him, this creed that is constantly repeated. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. He was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. And friends, what I tell you this morning is not something new, but it is an ancient hope, an ancient faith, an ancient truth that is rock steady that you can build your life upon. He begins to build their faith with this creed. Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. And then He was buried and then He rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. Twice in the creed He says according to the Scriptures. And the reason He's saying that is because built upon the creed is the prophecy of Christ's life, His death, his burial, his resurrection. I told you that Isaiah 53 said that God hath laid upon him the iniquity of us all. In the 1950s, a young boy was playing near the Dead Sea. He went into a cave and he found these little jars. In the jars were all of these scrolls, which are now known as the Dead Sea Scrolls. We believe that they were put there by the Essenes. They were a group of people that felt Jerusalem was too evil and too modern. So like the Amish, they stepped outside of culture and society and lived in their own little community. They copied the scriptures regularly and they copied these scriptures in about 400 to 800 B.C., years before Christ would come. And these scrolls were found in the Dead Sea Scrolls with truths like, by His stripes we are healed. God hath laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. All we like sheep have gone astray. And so when Christ was born, when He died, when He rose again, it was all according to prophecies that had been written about hundreds of years before His birth, death, burial, and resurrection. He's saying this is not something new. This is something that is old and true and something that is according to prophecy. They could build their faith upon the creed. They could build their faith upon the Scriptures. And then He says... And Christ was seen of many, of Peter, of 
James, of the 12 apostles, and above 500 witnesses at one time. He says, these witnesses, many of whom are alive today, you can go and ask them about seeing Christ alive. He's saying, listen, there are people alive today that you can go talk to who have seen Jesus Christ who has risen from the dead. Now that was true when Paul wrote Corinthians. It's not true today because those people have passed away. But they didn't pass away of natural causes. Many of them were killed because they proclaimed the message of Jesus Christ. Now many people will die for a lie, but no one dies for what they know to be a lie. Many people have been fooled to giving their life for a false cause, but no one gives their life for something they know is not true. And every one of these people that were martyred for their faith, they went to their very grave, breathing their last breath, saying, I saw Christ risen from the dead. I knew that he died for my sins and the sins of mankind. And so today, we can build our faith upon the witnesses who have become martyrs. They died for the truth they believed. He said, you can build your faith upon this creed. You can build your faith upon the scripture and the prophecy of Jesus Christ. You can build your faith upon the testimony of these witnesses. And then in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 10, he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. And he says, the revolution that has taken place in my heart and life is evidence that Christ rose from the dead and made this transformation in me. Some of you, you felt weird or awkward walking in the church today because it's been a long time since you've been in church. You haven't been walking with God. I've even had people say to me, Pastor Jane, I don't know if you want me to come in the doors of your church. The roof may cave in. Maybe that's how you feel. My friend, did you know that Paul, the guy writing these words, that not only did he live a life that was in not following God, but he lived a life that was in absolute opposition to the message of the gospel, that the people who were preaching the message like I'm preaching today, he threw them in prison, that the very first martyr, Stephen, he stood by while he was stoned and killed. There was no greater skeptic than Paul, but his life was changed because he came to believe that Jesus rose from the dead and had died for his sins. You may have been living a life of wickedness and sin. You may have been living a life not thinking about God, not walking with Him on the straight and narrow way. But I don't see anybody in here today who has threatened my life because that one guy didn't show up today. You may be here and feel like you don't belong, but there's nobody, nobody here who would have been more of an outsider than Paul was the first day that he walked into a church and he sat next to people that he had threatened their lives for preaching the gospel. How was he changed? How was there this incredible revolution in his heart? He came to be convinced that Jesus Christ had risen from the dead and that he had in fact died for Paul's sins and that made all the difference in the world. And the change that happened in Paul's heart was just the beginning of the revolution that would sweep through many people and Christianity would be born. And Paul says, by the grace of God, I am what I am and no longer what I was. And the revolution of my heart is yet another reason for you to have faith, for you to believe that Christ has risen. And friends, when you have faith, when you build your faith upon the truth of Scripture, you can have a hope that is reliable. You see, many people, they walk around carrying their hope pretty precariously. Afraid they're going to drop it. Don't want anybody with negative vibes around them. Can't have any negativity around me. Don't bring me down. Don't harsh my vibe. 
try to keep my positive outlook, good thoughts, because there's nothing for their hope to rest in. But friend, when you got faith in the cross, when you believe that He died for your sins and then rose again the third day, verifying that He is the Son of God, you can rest your hope upon faith. And no matter what comes, no matter what you face, you can have hope in Christ. And you can build your hope upon faith. That's my desire for you today. That was Paul's desire for the Corinthians. That they could build their hope upon something that would not be shaken. If you would bow your heads with me, we're going to have a word of prayer, and I'm going to ask you just to look within your own heart. It may be today you, you want to have faith, but you're not sure that you understand it all, and how can you believe it all if you don't understand it all? We can start with two simple beliefs. The first one's real easy. Do you believe that you're a sinner? Most people don't have any, any, any trouble believing that they've made mistakes believing that they've fallen short of what God requires of us. If you believe that, secondly, do you believe He's a Savior? Do you believe that He died on the cross for your sins and rose again, verifying that He took the punishment for you? If you can understand and believe that, we can start there. If you can believe that you're a sinner and you can believe that He's a Savior, this morning while I pray, I'm going to invite you to take a moment, call on God Admit your sin and call Him your Savior. Ask Him to forgive you and come into your life. It's the very reason He came, lived, died, and rose again.